Chapter 8, Forms of Real Estate Ownership. Before we get too far involved in Chapter 8, let's do a quick look back on Chapter 7, which is our chapter on interests in real estate where we talk about fee simple titles and the feasible fees, uh, life estates. Um, chapter 7 talks, us, talks about the quality of the estate that we can have. You know, the fee simple estate being the highest quality, most complete rights, lasts forever, willable. 99% um, of estates out there are considered fee simple estates. Chapter 8 talks about how we can own that fee simple estate. So, our fee simple estates we can own either by ourselves as an individual in which case our ownership is considered ownership in severalty. So we can own our fee simple estate by ourselves in severalty. And oh, by the way, if we own our fee simple estate by ourselves in severalty, and if we're married, our, our marriage partner also gets a right in our property. Not a right of ownership, but she gets the right of homestead which is something we talked about in Chapter 7. So these homestead rights apply to all individuals occupying a property, uh, not just the owner of the property. So if we were going to sell our property then, not only are we, when we talk to our potential seller, we want to know if our seller is married, because if our seller is married, even though the seller owns the property in severalty by themselves, their wife will also join in, in signing the sales contract and the deed to release these homestead rights. Co-owners with other others, so we can own it by ourselves, our fee simple title by ourselves, or we can own it as one of form of co-ownership with other people. So we could be a tenant in common, joint tenancy, or tenancy by the entireties as far as co-owners. Our fee simple title can be held in trust. Our fee simple title can be held by businesses. Remember that a business is a person too. It's a legal entity. So whether your business is formed as a partnership, a corporation, a syndicate, or an LLC, it can hold title in its own name. So our fee simple title we understand ownership and severalty. That's pretty easy. We just own it by ourselves. If we want to own property with other people, uh, we have a couple of choices. We've got the right of tenancy in common. We've got the ownership by tenancy in common. We have the ownership by tenancy by the uh, entireties. And we have the ownership by joint tenancy. Let's see what how they're similar. Let's see how they're different. If we want if we, you and I were going to be a co-owner, one of the first things we would ask ourselves is, what do we want to have happen to the property when we die? If we as co-owners say we want the property to go to our heirs, our individual personal heirs by, let's say, will, okay, then our choice is easy. We're going to be tenants in common. So that's the big question. Where do we want the property to go when one of us dies? As I said, if we agree that we want our share of the property 
to go to our heirs, let's say by will or by statute of descent, then we become tenants in common. If you want the interest in the property to go to the remaining co-owners, then we select joint tenancy. So if we decide that upon our death we want the survivors of our partnership, our co-partnership, co-ownership to, to get the property, we would be joint tenants. Tenancy in common then, the basics of tenancy in common are there's a unity of possession which means we as tenants in common all have the right to possess the property. It's the only unity that we have. As tenants in common, we can have a disproportionate interest. If there's three of us, one can own one half, one can own one eighth, one can own two sixteenths, if whatever the disproportionate uh, interest would be. Tenants in common each of us would get a deed expressing our particular interest on the deed. One deed to each of the co-owners as tenants in common. It's an inheritable estate. Obviously also saleable and giftable. We can give our interest in a tenancy in common away. We can sell it if we want to and we can will it if we want to. So we have the most rights to dispose of the property as tenants in, if we were a tenant in common. Joint tenants, however, while we have the right to sell our joint tenancy or give our joint tenancy away, dispose of it that way, we can't will our interest as a joint tenant owner. It will go to the survivors of the joint tenancy not to our personal survivors. So joint tenancy, we say, has the right of survivorship. In other words, the survivors of the joint tenancy have the right to get the decedent's interest, joint tenant interest, not their heirs. We have unities with joint tenancy. We have the root unity of possession, so we all have unrestricted access. So does tenancy in common. But joint tenancy also has these unities. The unities of interest. So we have to have equal interest, uh, equal ownership interests as a joint tenant, not unequal. So if there's three of us, each has one-third. Fourth of us, each one-fourth. Five of us, each one-fifth. We take one deed at one time. So one title, one deed with all of our names at one time expressing the equal interest that all the joint tenants have in the property. These are our four unities. P-I-T-I, pity. Possession, interest, time, and title. As I say, the right of the uh, unity of possession is included in tenancy in common, but not the other unities these are expressly, expressly set aside as rights under joint tenancy. Let's give an example of joint tenancy and death, this idea of right of survivorship. So the big blue 
screen there, that's our unity. And we have our equal interests under that unity of interest. Each of us has equal interests, as we know in joint tenancy. A dies. Where does his one-third equal interest go? Doesn't go to his heirs. His interest remains within that blue joint tenancy umbrella. And now the survivors, which are B and C of the joint tenancy, take my one-third interest, or A's one-third interest, split them between it, if you will. So each now, B and C, as joint tenants, have a one-half interest. Here's a joint tenancy in a sale. Joint tenants, as well as tenants in common, can sell their interests. Joint tenants, of course, all have equal interests. A decides he's going to sell it to X. X is not part of that big blue ball that we have up there. So X's one-third interest, the new owner that he got from A, will not be part of the joint tenancy. X is going to be a tenant in common interest with B and C. So B and C still have an undivided two-thirds interest, or one-third each, with X having a one-third interest as a tenant in common. Simply means that X, in fact, could will his tenancy in common one-third, but not true of B and C. If B or C died, their interest would remain within the joint tenancy and it would go to the party. So here's tenants in common in death. We have A, B, and C. Notice each has a separate deed for their one-fourth, one-half, and one-fourth unequal interest. X, excuse me, A passes away. Where does his one-fourth interest go? To whoever he wills it to. In this case, little a, little a, little a, his ears. So you can will if you have a tenant in common interest. You can't will your joint tenant interest. interest. That's the big right you lose as a joint tenant. Tenancy by the entirety. It's very similar to joint tenancy, only it's exclusively designed for married couples. There are So it has the right of survivorship. It has all the unities that joint tenancy has. Uh, there's a protection for the marital dwelling inherent in the tenancy by the entirety if we take title that way. Uh, we must declare that we're going to be tenancy by the entireties. We don't automatically get it. It's got to be on our deed. And like joint tenancy, it's for married people. It's a little stricter because tenancy by the entirety means that neither spouse can do anything with the joint tenant property unless the other spouse also joins in uh, the property. So neither spouse as a tenant by the entirety can convey title without the other spouse. Neither spouse can encumber the property unless the other spouse also joins in that encumbrance, that lien, let's say. Community property, we do not have in Illinois, but in those states that have community property, we have, in, in Illinois, we're called a marital property state. Honestly, marital property states are like community property, only it isn't automatically 50-50. Marital property states means the court can decide how much they're going to split between the parties. And yes, while they often split 
um, as community property states do. They don't have to. So we're not a community property state. But in a community property, we have uh, a separate property, his separate property, hers, which are property which acquired prior to the marriage. <coughs> and if there's a divorce, any separate property that we had before we brought into the union, we get to keep. We don't have to share it. Anything after the marriage becomes community property, which belongs to both parties 50-50. A land trust is a way of holding title where we can protect the identity and of the uh, owners of the trust. Uh, it's also a way of, of some offering some other protections to the property if it's held in trust. What happens in a land trust is that the trustors, these are two property owners holding a fee simple estate, these people called trustors convey to a trustee their fee simple title who becomes the legal title holder. They make themselves beneficiaries of the trusted property. So our owners convey title to the trustee and automatically, simultaneously, become beneficial interest title holders, which basically means while they do not own the property any longer, they control the property. The trustor would convey to the trustee by a document called a deed and trust. The trustee would become the legal title holder and the trustors would move over to the right side of the screen here and become beneficial interest holders. And again, as beneficial interest holders, the trustee could do nothing to injure them. The trustee becomes an agent of the beneficiaries and can do nothing to harm them. So in fact, while the trustee will show on the public records that they're the owner of the property, trust number one, two, three, four, five, for instance, it's really the beneficial interest owners that control the trust. And now there's a secrecy because public records will not show our beneficial interest holders' names. They will show the trustee's name. And therefore, there's a secrecy so if you check the public records, you're not going to find the beneficial interest holders' names. You're simply going to find the trustee's name as it relates to that parcel of property. With partnerships, we have general partnerships where all partners are on the same level. We could also have limited partnerships where we have general partners and limited partners. Uh, the big difference is that general partners have full liability and control over the partnership. Limited partnerships are limited only to whatever their investment might be. So when we have partnerships, it, we're, it's really a way of holding uh, an interest or title to a real property through a business entity, uh, whereby as a limited partner, you're limited to the liability of the enterprise, uh, which is just your investment. And what you give up for this limited liability is you have no control over the investment vehicle or over day-to-day -day management decisions of the uh, limited partnership. The general partners do. 
So in a limited partnership, we have two classifications of partners. The general partners that run the, the business on a daily basis, they have full control, but they have uh, unlimited liability. And then we have limited partners that have no control, but they have limited liability, usually limited to the amount of their investment. That's usually about the extent of what their loss is going to be. They can't be held personally liable for any of the actions of the general partners. So we have the general partners on one level, limited partners on another. Corporations can hold title to property. Uh, they're legal entities. Uh, the corporation, if it's a real estate uh, company, has to be licensed. Uh, real estate corporations can uh, pay peop uh, salespeople, can receive and pay their salespeople, or in our case now, brokers' uh, commissions. A real estate investment trust is really an investment vehicle where a group of people in put their property together to acquire real estate. Condominium is a form of ownership. Actually, the condominium is a, uh, a way of, uh, of the uh, property, um, the way it's actually sort of built. Uh, a condominium form of ownership means that uh, we have a uh, unit uh, whereby we have a condo owner who owns it in fee simple title. So you own your unit in the condominium, yeah, you have a deed to it with your fee simple title that you own in severalty or perhaps you own as a in tenancy by the entirety with your spouse. Uh, so you get an, a deed. Uh, you also get an ownership of a percentage of common elements. Common elements meaning you also own a percentage of the sidewalks in front of the condo, you own a percentage of the stairway, you own a percentage of the elevator, you own a percentage of the laundry room, you own a percentage of the party room, etc. So you own a percentage of the common elements. That's why you are charged an association fee to help pay for your percentage uh, of the common elements that you and the other condo owners own. So there are two things you own in a condo. Your deed gives you a fee simple title to your unit, plus your deed gives you a percentage of ownership of common elements. You can put a mortgage on your unit that applies only to your unit. If you don't pay uh, on your mortgage, if you go on default, only your unit is sold, not other units around you. You get a tax bill just on your unit. In Illinois, there are not a lot of cooperatives. There are a couple in the city of Chicago. Uh, cooperatives from the exterior may even look like our condo unit, a building with individual units in it. So you can't tell from the street whether you have a condo or a cooperative until you get involved with the actual documents by the unit uh, owner or the unit uh, dweller. Uh, in a cooperative, it's the corporation that owns the entire building and uh, the, corp the corporation is responsible for payment of taxes and for mortgage payments. And how does the corporation paper the property taxes and make those mortgage payments on any loans that they have out? They, of course, assess the unit uh, owner's 
of the uh, cooperative of each of the cooperative units. Now, the, the owner is probably not a good way to say this as far as the individual who is in possession of that unit. Uh, actually, what happens as a in a um, cooperative building are that the uh, the t the tenants there. Uh, actually purchase stock from the corporation. The corporation in turn then gives them a proprietary lease. So they're not really owners in the truest sense. Uh, they are owners of shares of stock and they have a lease on their particular unit and of course they still get their, their monthly assessments like, any, like, like for the same reasons that, that uh, they do in a uh, condo. Uh, a condo owner would to pay for taxes, mortgage payments, maintenance, and all the other things that that uh, the corporation is going to have to pay for. So it's the corporation that owns that big building, and the unit uh, uh, dwellers there uh, are not are not technically owners. There's a board of directors that makes the decisions for the corporation, and of course those are the monthly assessments that we talked about. We're going to jump ahead to page 159 since we just discussed condo ownership. We can let's discuss townhouse ownership. Often I'll get asked the question, "What's the difference between uh, uh, condos and townhomes?" And the, the difference basically is architectural styles more than anything. You know, with condos, you have a unit and you own the inside of the condo unit. With townhouses, you own the complete unit, including the exterior of that unit, uh, as well as the land. And typically with townhouses, we may have basements and first floors and second floors, uh, as well as, as, as would describe the unit. Uh, condos and townhouse owners have fee simple ownership. Uh, they get the deeds to their units. Uh, plus a percentage of common elements. These are the common elements that they share with other co-owners. Uh, common elements uh, might include the recreational areas, sidewalks, parking lots, etc. that all of the owners enjoy. Uh, condo owners and townhouse owners may also have uh, rights to limited common elements. These would be uh, common elements that um, only they have the uh, the right to. Uh, it's restricted to just them as an owner. And a good example of a limited common element might be a uh, might be a balcony in a condo. Maybe it's a deck in a uh, in a townhouse. Um, and uh, even though the uh, common element uh, with uh, condos. Uh, they're owned by the other owners. The common elements in townhouses are typically owned by the um, by the homeowners association, uh, and uh, so therefore, if you had uh, a townhouse with a uh, with a deck that needed repair, uh, the uh, uh, townhouse association may actually participate and actually you know, pay for some of that because they technically uh, own that, but giving you an exclusive right to that limited common element. So you'd pay a share and the, and the, the townhouse uh, home association would pay a share for your limited common element. So, uh, and all these things are detailed in the documents that you get with, with the condominiums we talked a little bit about. Uh, they, you get a declaration of condominium for them. With a townhouse, you'd get a, what's called a declaration of restricted covenants. <coughs> 
uh, and that would detail and embody uh, all of the and, the, and these are registered documents, and these would describe uh, the rules and regulations which govern the use of the units and common areas, and what is allowed and what isn't allowed and prohibited and not prohibited. Uh, so very important that both all owners get their, their restrictive covenants or their declaration of condominium uh, documents so that they can read them thoroughly and be familiar with them before they take title. Timeshares. Uh, Timeshares in Illinois. The big thing about timeshares is, is it's any time there is an interval type of ownership where there may be many owners that own their title for only a short period of time intervals. We would call that a timeshare. The big deal with timeshares in Illinois is that anybody who's engaged in marketing them or selling them must be licensed. There were a lot of abuses in the past on timeshare uh, sales and the individuals that sold timeshares. So now we regulate them pretty heavily. There is a fee simple estate and you'd be given a deed uh, if it's a timeshare estate for uh, the two weeks uh, that you're entitled to own it from September 1 through September 15th or what it might, might be. So we might have multiple fee simple estates each for its own interval in a timeshare uh, form of ownership. On page 160, we talk about the uh, Illinois Timeshare Act. And uh, a couple things we should know about the Illinois Timeshare Act. First of all, there is such a thing as the Illinois Timeshare Act. And it requires that anybody who is offering timeshares, actually there it's a minimum of, of eight offerings in a given year, but I think this applies to pretty much anybody. So anyone who is making an offering of timeshares, uh, the company itself, as well as the individuals offering the timeshares, need to be licensed, just like you, broker's licenses and managing broker's licenses. This Illinois Timeshare Act was written to uh, do a good job, of better job of protecting uh, Illinois citizens against abuses in the timeshare industry. And uh, so it requires uh, some uh, uh, special uh, laws passed uh, to regulate the timeshare industry. One of the first things they're going to do is they're going to require these people to get licensed. Now, once they get licensed, they're under the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation. And uh, so they're gonna, there's going to be some accountability. Uh, the Illinois Timeshare Act uh, has some specific uh, requirements if you're going to be listing your property uh, with a uh, with a, t a timeshare company. Uh, I must confess I don't really know what these specific requirements are, but there there are some there there. If I ever got involved with one, I'd probably go find out more about it. But the thing that is important is that uh, buyers must be given a public offering statement uh, prior to uh, uh, be being given a, a contract on the property. So before you sign a sales contract, uh, a purchase agreement on any of these timeshare units you want to get, <coughs> you must be given a public offering statement. Now, the public offering statement um, uh, discloses a lot of information about the property, such as uh, the time period you're going to have the, the uh, ownership for, percentage of common uh, expenses that you have to pick up for each of the units, uh, the use and any uh, restrictions of occupancy, uh, the total number of units in, in the timeshare uh, building, 
uh, in addition, uh, it's going to uh, you're going to be giving uh, given in the public offering statement specific information about the developer and and or the property manager that you're dealing with. There are other disclosures that the Timeshare Act requires, uh, which includes uh, status of any assessments that are due on the property, any real estate pro or and or personal property taxes uh, that might be involved in, in uh, any of the timeshare units you're going to be involved in. Uh, so there are more disclosures that are made. Um, the... Uh, uh, the individual that is involved in purchasing a timeshare actually has five days to cancel from the time that they're, they sign a contract or the time that they get a, a public offering statement, whichever is later. Typically, the public offering statement is supposed to be given before a sales contract is signed, but if it's given after a sales contract is, is signed, that's when uh, the five-day uh, 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 cancellation uh, clause uh, kicks in. So you can still get out of these things in Illinois within five days of the contract or being given your public offering statement. And then lastly, um, when someone's going to offer a timeshares in Illinois, they actually have to register the timeshare with Illinois Department of Professional Regulation, and they're giving sort of a license or a permit to offer these timeshares in Illinois. So if they uh, violate any of these conditions we just talked about, they can have their, their permit or their ability to offer these timeshares revoked uh, by the department here in Illinois. At the end of Chapter 8, do your study guide exercises in your study guide, and also do your Chapter 8 chapter tests, and good luck.